everybody and find a spot and make sure you have some paperwork. This is new handouts for this final session today that starts on page 25 and we'll go through page 30. So you've had 24 previous pages given. Everybody have a copy of today's handout? Excellent. Thank you guys very much. Some announcements. Tonight at 6 o'clock is our annual Christmas fellowship. And if you go to our website, you'll see the banner for that. And if you click on that, it tells you what it is we ask you to bring. Those with last names A through L, I think, are a dessert. And M through Z, I believe, are appetizers. And the church will provide a main dish. And so we'll enjoy a meal together. But then after that, uh, some entertainment, such as, such as it is. So... Uh, <laughs> No, we always, we always have a great time. We invite you to, uh, to come. Look forward to seeing you tonight at 6 o'clock. This Wednesday, no midweek at all, and we have no midweek ministries all the way through January the 24th. And even then, on January the 24th, we won't have our adult classes, Community Institute. Instead, we have Jonathan Lehman, who's going to be with us, and we're looking forward to having uh, him uh, speak on the topic you see on the screen there. He has some real expertise in that. Uh, he's going to be the following day at Detroit Baptist uh, Seminary. That morning, we're going to a pastor's forum together the week before he comes. He's going to be interviewed on WMUZ. Uh, it's going to be the previous Monday, Monday the 15th, I think it is. And he's going to be on the Bob Duco program in the afternoon. And he'll be interviewed about one of his books, his latest book called Authority. And, but they will also plug his uh, appearance here and at the seminary as well. So that'll, that'll be helpful. So we don't have anything on Wednesday nights until that. The following week, the 31st, then we'll resume our adult classes in Community Institute. Uh, on that date, the 24th, there will be the nursery and toddler. And all uh, through elementary and ju junior high age, uh, we will have the kids' programs going on that night while Jonathan is here in, in the auditorium. Next week and the following week, the next two Sundays, we only have one service. So on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, 10.30 worship service, and that's it on those days. Three weeks from today, our, we'll start a new series in here. That new series in here is titled Full Service Church. So it's not an outreach series. Uh, we won't be sending mailers around, but at the beginning of the year, I want to spend several weeks with us uh, reminding but also informing of some new things that we're looking to do as part of our desire to be what I call a full-service church, and I'll remind you of what that is at that time. That's three weeks from today in this, in this hour. Uh, the day prior to that, Saturday the 6th, January the 6th, there is an apologetics conference up in Troy, and I get to be a part of that. It's called Christianity versus Everybody, and uh, and uh, seniors in high school and uh, college and career age young people are who that is for. So if you know anybody that fits in that category and they want to come, it's $25. You, have, you need to register at the seminary website. We have printed invitations on the Welcome Center desk. But that $25, we will cover, the church will cover. So if you just uh, let me know that they want to go, then we'll uh, cover that for them because we want as many to go as, as possible. Today is the final, tenth lesson in our series, God's Design for Sexuality. So what do, I, what do I do now? What do we do now? How do I engage the culture? 
And that's what these final set of notes for you that we'll go through today are about. And that necessitates that we have a decent handle on where the culture is now. If I'm going to engage it, where is it? And I say at the top of page 25, I call this engaging the culture when there are no rules. <laughs> You're engaging a culture where there are no guardrails, where there are no, no boundaries, and you'll I'll seek to show that as we go through this. And so how do we deal with people in a culture that is uh, in that kind of unknown territory, really, uh, for the culture as a whole? It's always been true that you have people who don't have a justification for their views on right and wrong and all of that, and it, but it has increased and it has gained power in a way in our day that is at least unprecedented in my lifetime. And that's why I say what I say at the top there, that we're engaging a culture when there are no rules. And I ask the question, is nothing weird anymore? Because if you think about that, if you think about that, that question, if you think about what we mean when we say weird, and I'm not using that as a pejorative, I'm just trying to make the point that there is such a thing as weird, or at least there should be. <laughs> but as I've been trying, at, been at pains to say, over these weeks together, that in order to say that something doesn't fit, something doesn't meet a standard, that assumes you have the standard. So in order to say something is wrong, then you must have some standard of right. In order to say that it's abnormal, you gotta have some standard of normal. In order to say that something is a disorder, well then what does order look like? And if you, if you don't have that standard, then what is weird, if anything? And that's why I ask the question, I say here, top of page 25, within our lifetimes, at least for those of a certain age, I'll just leave that out there, we have moved from a society adhering to traditional Christian values to post-Christian culture. It's a world that Christian thinkers have been warning about for a good while. The late Christian philosopher and theologian Francis Schaeffer wrote in his seminal work, How Should We Then Live? The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. He said, if there is no absolute moral standard, then one cannot say in a final sense that anything is right or wrong. By absolute, we mean that which always applies, that which provides a final or, or ultimate standard. There must be an absolute if there are to be morals. If there is no absolute beyond man's ideas, then there is no final appeal to judge between individuals and groups whose moral judgments conflict. We are merely left with conflicting opinions. And that is where, where, for very many today in our culture, uh, we find ourselves. Now, based on then that moral sand on which our culture stands, where then does, does that lead? And it leads in some very disturbing uh, directions. Uh, Alfred Kinsey, I say here, biologist and sociologist at the Institute for Sex Research at Indiana, produced his influential sexual behavior for the human male and for the human female. These were based on 18,500 interviews. He made that which is right in sex a matter of statistics. Many people read his books. However, their real impact was the underlying conception that sexual right and wrong depend only on what most people are doing at a given moment of history. This has become the generally accepted sexual standard 
in the years since. With very little then thought given to whether or not what the culture is doing is bad. Or to put it another way, whether it's good for society as a whole. But how could we make any judgment about whether or not it's bad if we don't have a standard? Now, Christian people are warned throughout Scripture to not allow ourselves to drift then with the sand of the culture. Famously in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Romans 12, 2, we're told, be not conformed to this world. Do not be, one translation translates that, conform to the world, translates that as, do not be squeezed into the world's mold. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now that's something that you and I have to be vigilant about all the time. Because the culture goes in its direction. Some of what the culture does is, is good based upon God's common grace. And we have to discern that. We have to determine that. But much of what the culture does is what the Bible calls worldly. It's based upon values, priorities, allegiances that are contrary to God's character. So if you were to draw a circle, a larger circle, you've just got culture and everything that goes on in a culture. Language, customs, arts, fashion, and so on. Media, that's culture. But then within culture, you've got a smaller circle, but unfortunately in our culture, ever large, larger, which is worldly in all of those. So on the outside, some of culture is, in God's common grace, good. And then much of it is worldly, contrary to the character of God. And we have to then discern that, decide what we're going to participate in and what we will not, what we're going to watch and what we won't watch. What's simply part of culture and good in God's common grace and what is worldly and therefore contrary to God's character and not suitable for Christian people? So, how, how, how are you doing with that? See, what, what happens is with most of us, we just take what the world's given. If it's on TV, I mean, it can't be that bad. You know, if it's at the movies, therefore, I can ask you, you can ask me, have you seen whatever movie it is? Have you seen this movie? And then, inevitably, this word is always on the end. Have you seen it yet? Have you seen that yet? The assumption seems to be, we're all going to see it. It's just a matter of when. Just by the way, not me. I decided a long time ago, Hollywood does not have my best interests at heart as a Christian. And, you know, you have to discern what things you're going to watch, friends, as Christian people. Uh, so you cannot, as a Christian person, absorb your values from the world. So some of you have heard me say over the years this. If you do not consciously adopt your values from Scripture. You will unconsciously absorb them from the culture. If you do not consciously adopt them based upon what the Scriptures teach and then apply those principles to what it is you're considering, if you don't consciously do that, 
you will unconsciously absorb them from the world within the culture. And that's what so many of us have done. So let me, let me give you an example, and you guys might go, man, you are really weird. So I'm trying to define weird here, okay? So I might be the object lesson. It's not okay for me, uh, as, for me to look at a woman in her underwear, right? That's not okay, is it? Is that a question? Okay, here's a hint. No, it's not okay. All right? That's not okay. It's not okay for men to do it. It's not okay for women to look. It's not okay for us to do that. Now, the culture doesn't care whether you do that. They want to stick stuff in front of you all the time. And they do it enough and often enough that we can then get the idea that we just sort of absorb but I just want to be the person who just kind of say, hey, let's step back for a minute. It's not okay for me to look at a woman who's not my wife in her underwear. Now, if that's the case, if it's not okay for me to look at a woman who's not my wife in her bra and panties, is it okay for me to look at a woman who's not my wife in a bikini? I mean, what are we saying? As long as the bra and panties are waterproof, I mean, isn't that what, I'm, I don't know, I'm missing something. Because it seems the same to me. You're pretty much naked. I don't care whether you're going in water or not. I don't care whether you're getting a tan or not. So from my standard, from my understanding of what the Bible teaches about purity and about commitment to your spouse in a pure way, I don't need that. But the culture does it all the time. And we, I think, got these kind of inconsistencies where, you know, we go, well, no, you can't look at somebody in your underwear. Are you kidding? But a bikini. So I just use it as an example to say, you see how we can easily be absorbed into the world's thinking. So where does this lack of standard then lead for us? Next paragraph, middle of page 25, the vacuum left by this departure from the norms of creation opens us up to, well, anything. It happens that the year after the Adams Family movie was released, which I haven't seen yet, but, but, their, but their advertising blurb was weird as relative. And the year after that, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote his infamous Mystery of Life passage in a Supreme Court decision saying, quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That set the stage for the same Justice Kennedy to write the majority opinion in the 2015 decision that legalized same-sex marriage, saying, the Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes certain specific rights that allow persons within a lawful realm to define and express their identity. So this is individualism on steroids. You decide. You decide the meaning of the universe. You decide the, the uh, mystery of human life. You decide how you're going to express your own identity. 
Bottom of page 25, this business of defining one's own concept of existence, meaning the universe, mystery of human life, is really heady stuff. And try, though, Kennedy did, to constrain this expansive individualism. Some saw through it and to where it will inevitably lead. Now, he tried to in his decision. I've read it. So he says this stuff. But then he says, now, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but in effect, this can't be taken too far. Well, yeah, it can. Based on what? Why can't it be taken too far? And you know, I just say this to you, friends, for policies, for lawmakers, for, for anybody who's in a position of authority and you put down principles for an organization, one of the things you always want to consider is the limiting factor. You know, what are the guardrails around it? that keep it in place, keep it moving, keep it going in the direction you want. If you don't have any of that, then there's no telling where it might go. And that's true of what Justice Kennedy did because Chief Justice John Roberts, dissenting in that 2015 opinion, said, top of page 26, which I heard some of you are already there. <laughs> this will all be on the big screen at the judgment seat of Christ. <laughs> and I'll be standing there going... Top of page 26. It's striking, says just Chief Justice uh, Roberts, how much of the majority's reasoning would apply with equal force to the claim of a fundamental right to plural marriage. So he's saying, Kennedy writes his opinion, and he's saying, you know, two people have the right, and, and Kennedy kept saying two people. If two people love each other, then two people can do whatever, two people, and it's just two people. He goes, the reasoning applies to more than two people. Plural marriage. If, quote, there's dignity in a bond between two men and two women who seek to marry and in their autonomy to make such profound choices, why would there be any less dignity in the bond between three people who, in exercising their autonomy, seek to make the, the profound choice to marry? If a same-sex couple has the constitutional right to marry because their children would otherwise, quote, suffer the stigma of knowing their families are somehow lesser, why wouldn't the same reasoning apply to a family of three or more persons raising children? If not having the opportunity to marry, quote, serves to disrespect and subordinate gay and lesbian couples, why wouldn't the same, quote, imposition of this disability serve to disrespect and subordinate people who find fulfillment in polyamorous relationships? And of course, he is right. So you will see as long as Obergefell, the name of that 2015 case, is the law of the land, then you will see in the future people challenging for plural marriage, not just two people. And at that point in 2015, one could only imagine and dread the kinds of relationships that would be sought in the future by those who are untethered to any absolute except their own fallen desire. But that undesirable future is upon us. With the unspeakable now being spoken and promoted. This was just last month. Moral philosopher and professor of bioethics at Princeton, Peter Singer. So let me stop there with that guy. So when I was in college 40 years ago, and I took a philosophy class at U of M Dearborn, I had to read Peter Singer, so this guy's ancient. Okay, he had already written books then. He's still alive. 
and he's tweeting. And he was advocating to treat animals exactly like you treat humans. That's been his big thing. Treat animals, animals and humans, animals have rights like humans do, is the idea. I'm not advocating to mistreat your animals, okay? I'm just saying, they don't have the same rights as humans. I see a distinction. I've got this in the image of God thing going that I read somewhere. All right, back to this. But here's, that was Peter Singer's claim to, to fame. And he's got this, you know, animal thing going on. You guys know where this is going. It's, it's sick, so I'll just kind of go through it quickly. And Peter Singer teaches at Princeton. Princeton is still a, associated with the Presbyterian Church USA. And out of Princeton came the professors who founded Westminster Seminary, from which I got a degree. Uh, so at one time, Princeton Seminary was a very, a very good place. No longer. And Peter Singer's there. And he tweeted last month, another thought-provoking article is zoophilia is morally permissible. Just out in the current issue of the Journal of Controversial Ideas, this piece challenges one of society's strongest taboos and argues for the moral permissibility of some forms of sexual contact between humans and animals. The article offers a controversial perspective that calls for a serious and open discussion on animal ethics and sex ethics. When questioned about his promotion of the subject, he replied, I didn't write the article on the permissibility of zoophilia. It was published in the journal, a journal that pushes back against cancel culture. So there are some things we want to cancel, aren't there? Oh, all right. Some things we hope never actually get there to be canceled. But by providing an outlet for controversial ideas, which authors can publish under a pseudonym, I am founding co-editor of that journal. We send articles submitted to us out for peer review. And if the reviewers consider that the article contains controversial ideas that are defended by argument of a sufficiently high standard to warrant publication, apparently this one did. We publish it. Now, Peter Singer is, a, Singer is a, a vegan precisely because he believes it's wrong to harm an animal. So killing an animal is wrong, but, and I'll just leave it at that. This past week, there was a, uh, just in the last few days, there was a um, sex tape that made the rounds of two men having sex in the Senate of the United States in a hearing room. And they, and they recorded this, and it's made the rounds. Now, I'm saying this, we're going to move on. It's really, I'm simply trying to make the point, friends, that when you have no standard, you don't know where it goes. And we live in a culture that does not have a standard. Now, what happened in the Senate hearing room was a desecration of a place that belongs to all U.S. citizens. We paid for that. Now, it would be a desecration if people were having heterosexual sex, too. And we should see it that way. And I don't want to get shot by anybody here, I'm just, but I want to make the case that if we are going to speak out, like I, I'm calling that a desecration I am telling you why it's happening because this culture has lost its mooring. 
And if you think that's a desecration, then you should also equally think other forms of using places like that for sexual activity are a desecration. And further, when people break into the Capitol and riot, that's a desecration too, even if they're people on our team. They're not on my team, by the way, but even if they're on your team. And I'm simply saying, if we're going to have credibility, we've got to be even-handed about what it is we condemn and why. But these were things that I never thought that I would be thinking about, that I'd be talking about. And yet in the last month, we got an article like that. And in the last few days, we've got an act like that going on. Bottom of page 26. Human flourishing. The biblical way of life is good for everyone. I believe that with all of my being. That to follow Jesus Christ, and to seek to live in accord with what he has said in the word of God is good for everybody. Even those who do not pursue it nevertheless benefit from it. Because Christians are, what Jesus said, the salt of the earth. Believers need to recover their confidence that the Christian faith is in fact good and right for all people. We do not simply believe that Christianity is true for us, it's true for all. It's not just good for us, it's good for all. Which means Christian engagement in the public square is good and needed. But that being the case, and I'm convinced that it is the case, it doesn't mean that we need to be advocating to outlaw everything that we find objectionable. Because we do live in a pluralistic society and in a democracy where other people can disagree with us. So we have to know somehow where am I going to draw that line? The things that I am going to say need to be outlawed and the things that don't, that I just despise. That's what the top of page 27 is about. There ought to be a law. Some make the mistake of thinking that there should be a law against everything we believe is wrong. For example, while I do not, while I do not use profanity and I don't appreciate hearing it from others, I'm not interested in laws against it. And there have been many over the years, as free speech in a pluralistic society means a good thing for me. It means I have to put up with your stuff, but here's the good part. It means you have to put up with mine too, <laughs> including my right to preach God's word and give the gospel. So we can have a series like this, and people can say what they want about it on social media, and I will answer them kindly, but we're not going to back up an inch upon using our free speech to advocate for what the gospel teaches and what the Bible says. So where do you then? What things do you? Here's one, one way to think about it, and that is natural law. So if we don't seek to outlaw all instances of immorality, how do we decide when? Many answers have been proffered for centuries, one of which is we should hold people accountable for matters contained in natural law. Now, matters contained in natural law, defining all that's within natural law is a challenge in itself. But it comes by general revelation in creation and conscience rather than special revelation in the Bible. And so all have access to it and are to abide by it. For example, one not need have a specific command to know that taking innocent life is wrong. Abel's murder at the hands of Cain was immoral centuries before it was codified in the Ten Commandments. 
Likewise, heterosexuality is ensconced in nature with marriage built on it for the stabilization of society for millennia going back to the beginning. It is certainly true that post-creation there have been many digressions from natural law, but disorder can only be identified in contrast to the order that preceded it. The sanctity of human life is a principle known to all and so is incumbent on all. And so one of the reasons like for abortion I am uncompromising is because that this is something that all people have access to, that human life is sacred, that human life is to be protected. And likewise, with regard to the, the, natural, uh, the, the, the natural form of sex, being hetero, heterosexual, and for the uh, multiplication of the, of, the, of the race, the human race. So that's just one, and there are lots of others, but that's one, to put some kind of parameters around what things do we want to advocate for. But you'll still get the question, middle of page 27, but who are you? Whenever one advocates for a law to regulate morality, she's inevitably asked, who are you to tell me what I do with my own body? One response is to ask who you have to be. Because in a democratic society where people are free to elect those who will legislate according to a voter's will, then who do I have to be? <laughs> but if pressed on that my body issue, we might imagine the following admittedly silly scenario. A motorist is pulled over by a police officer who tells her she ran a stop sign. The motorist asks why it's against the law to drive through stop signs. The officer might say someone might get killed. It probably wouldn't help much at that point for the driver to say, I understand you think killing is bad, but who are you to cram your morality down my throat? So the motorist asks, so what am I to do next time that I see those red octagonal signs? The officer says you need to stop accelerating, apply the brake. Once again, it probably would not help at that point for the driver to say, who are you to tell me? <laughs> see, we've, the point is, even in a silly example like that, Laws cram somebody else's morality down somebody else's throat all the time. The reason you need laws is because there are people who break them. The reason you need law, some laws, and in fact many laws, is because some people don't like them. But they still have to be restrained. And so people make those kinds of arguments. I'm simply trying to give you a way to think about how to respond. You see, laws are the expression of a society's collective view of morality, and laws always place responsibilities and prohibitions on people who may not like them. The question is not whether morality will be imposed. It's whose morality it will be. While we need not and should not seek to sanction all moral deviations, violations of natural law at least should be regulated. We should see the new ability to prohibit abortion post the Dobbs decision from last year as a good development. We should also prepare ourselves to explain why that's a good development. Why? Because Christianity is good for human flourishing. But Nancy Piercy says in her book, Love Thy Body, top of page 28, the biggest barrier to even considering Christianity today is its moral standard. Many people are no longer asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, why are Christians such bigots? The challenge is to show that in reality, biblical morality expresses a higher view of creation and the body than secular morality does. 
It grants greater dignity and worth to the human being and is ultimately more fulfilling. Now, you see what the question a lot of people are asking? Now, why are Christians such bigots? Lots of people are asking that. People may continue to ask that for the rest of my life. So you can respond to that like many Christians are and say, well, I don't care what the world thinks about me. They're going to hate me anyway. So just deal with it. But see, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't tell us to tell the world, just deal with it. It actually, the Bible does actually tell us, and I'm quoting now from Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5, be careful in the way you behave toward outsiders. How we go about our business matters. The tone that we use, the love that we show or lack thereof, it matters. We need to represent Jesus accurately that means not only in our position, but also in our disposition as well. And then, after having done that, if people still don't like it, now there's nothing I can do for you. Therefore, we should respond to the common charge of homophobia. You know, consider saying, hey, I'm a theophobe. The former refers to our supposed fear for ourselves, while the latter results results in fear for others. That is, we're not afraid of homosexuals or homosexuality. Instead, we're afraid for them because of our fear of someone else, our God and their and our creator. I'm a theophobe. I fear God. I fear God in my own life. I fear God for the lives of others as well. If the person says, hey, thanks, but I don't need you to fear for me. Okay, then as long as whatever you are doing doesn't have any impact on what the rest of us are doing, then that'll be between you and God. But the mere fact that we're having discussions about what you're doing, and the mere fact that you are asking for laws to affirm what you're doing, means it is affecting other people. So in our next paragraph, desire to love our neighbor and so see human flourishing, we desire laws, mores, customs that promote it. And so I say we should pray and advocate for the overturning of Obergefell. The same-sex marriage is harmful to society and it's especially harmful to children. It's already resulted in surrogacy for gay couples which results in birthing a child that's not going to have one or the other, either a mother or a father, and doing that by design, bringing a child into the world by design. Look, plenty, plenty of children are orphaned by losing a mother or a father, but it's not by design. My father died when I was 11, but none of this was by design. Now we're doing this by design. And in the Obergefell case before the Supreme Court, the attorney seeking to uphold prohibitions on same-sex marriage in the various states, Charles Cooper, he argued that the state has a legitimate interest in regulating marriage because marriage is the means by which children are propagated. And it's the proper way for that, that to happen. Uh, but then the argument was, well, wait a minute, then are you saying that 
you know, an 80-year-old couple who each lost maybe their previous spouse can't get married because they can't have children. So here is what Nancy Piercy says, I think helpfully. A common argument is that the only difference between same-sex and opposite-sex unions is that the former are infertile, and since infertile opposite-sex couples are legally permitted to marry, a la the older couple, it's right that same-sex couples are legally permitted to marry as well. But until the rise of the homosexual movement, no one thought the existence of infertile couples justified same-sex unions. Why not? Historically, the state has licensed the kind of union that leads to children. To inquire into the fertility of each couple presenting themselves for marriage would be massively intrusive and invasive of privacy. Moreover, most couples do not know if they are infertile until after they have been married for several years. And even if they intend not to have children when they get married, they often change their mind. Almost 90% of married couples do have children. So the rational course is, that, is what states have historically done. Licensed the male-female union because it's the only kind of relationship that can lead to children even if it does not always do so. But we'll see where that goes in the future. Right now, same-sex marriage is the law of the land. So how does this human flourishing, how do we carry it out? How do I carry it out? Well, I tried to give you some thoughts, general thoughts about that. And now, in our final moments, a little more specific Model human flourishing in word and deed. This means living in a way that shows that our life, the life that God designed, is best. Among other things it requires, participate in family life in the church as a family of families. Here's what I'm saying there. We need to be a community that people can, from the outside can look at and say, that's a beautiful thing. That's the way it was designed to be. And you should participate fully in it. Your children should participate fully in it and show that to an onlooking world. Secondly, present biblical family life as desirable in your own life. Extol marriage as a blessing. When you're at work, don't tell wife jokes or husband jokes. Don't demean, don't demean your spouse. Marriage is a blessing. Fornication, adultery, and pornography are evil. Extol children is a blessing. If God blesses you with children, talk about the blessing that it is regularly. Abortion, surrogacy, and homosexuality are evil. And resist participation or encouragement in deviations from biblical family life. Now, what do I mean by that? Top of the next page. Do not prevaricate. Now, why did I say prevaricate? What I really mean there is do not lie. Why didn't I say do not lie? Here's why. You see the next one, it says, do not promote. And I had three of them, and I was trying to make them all start with P. But I couldn't come up with it for the third one. But anyway, there's prevaricate, okay? That is, do not lie. And so what's happening is, for some of you, you are in work situations where your employer is telling you that on Monday, 
you should refer to someone as a woman who on Friday was a man. And I'm saying that would be lying. So don't lie. I said, I think it was last week, that I believe this is going to go legally in a good direction for us because I believe that religious liberty and free speech are going to protect people in the workplace to not have to say things that violate their conscience. And just this past week, on December 14th, the Virginia Supreme Court ruled in favor of a high school French teacher who said that he could not in good conscience use pronouns for a student that did not match his or her sex. The teacher was willing to use the student's chosen name and sought to avoid use of pronouns altogether when referring to the student. But the school fired him for failure to affirm the student's chosen identi identity, that should say identity, for use of the pro new pronouns. The court said, absent a truly compelling reason for doing so, no government can lawfully coerce its citizens into pledging verbal allegiance to ideological views that violate their sincerely held religious beliefs. Now that's one state, but it's their Supreme Court, and this is going to go to the United States Supreme Court. And I believe, and let's pray, that they will rule likewise. Now in the meantime, if I were working for a company that told me I had to do this, I would do it, but under protest. And I would go to HR, if you have an HR, and I would say, department, and I would say, hey, I want this in my file. I do this respectfully. I will do what this guy tried to do. I'll use a chosen name. I'll try to avoid. But I can't say things that I believe to be untrue. And until the courts sort this out, I'll cooperate because I don't want to lose my job. But I want it on file that I'm doing this under protest. And this is going to be decided in the next in the next year or so. But we can't lie. Secondly, we can't promote. When invited, encouraged, or even coerced to attend functions or accommodate lifestyles at variance with our biblical beliefs, Christians should respectfully decline, pointing to our obvious adherence to biblical family values. Now, I say, see above, our obvious adherence to biblical family values. If you're not somebody who obviously does that, then you don't have moral standing in order to point fingers in another direction. Do you see how important the credibility of our lives is? And then do not follow the crowd or your feelings. When in the company of others, whether work, school, family, neighborhood, Christians should kindly decline to, uh, to participate in verbal affirmations of. Now, when I say the crowd or your feelings, the feelings piece is this. Um, in um, Nancy Piercy's book that I've quoted a couple of times, Love Thy Body, she mentions the example of someone who struggled with same-sex attraction for his uh, life going back to junior high. But he's a Christian, but he admits he struggled with this. And he got counsel, and one of the areas of counseling that he received was you are allowing your feelings to dictate your identity. And he said, you know, once I stopped allowing my feelings to dictate who I am, but rather seeing the importance of the body that God gave me to dictate my identity. Then I started following that. Now, he said, that doesn't mean then the attraction went completely away, and it may not for the rest of my life, he said. 
but it made a profound difference when he stopped following his feelings and started following the objective truth of what God says about him and his identity. He's married and he has children. So that's what I mean by don't follow your feelings. While the mission of the local church is spiritual, the influence of the body of Christ, that is all of us, is spiritual and physical and political and sociological and economic and on it goes. Here's what I'm saying. Our church collectively has been given a mission. All local churches have been given a mission by Christ to carry out. Our mission as a church here is not to, is not to form a legislative committee to go to Lansing, to then march on Washington and all of that. That's not what our church does. Our church preaches the gospel, pursues the Great Commission, and trains people as best we can to live in the culture and the world around us, like I'm trying to do here. But Christians should have influence all over the place. And so I encourage you to do that, us to do that. Conclusion, the Christian worldview begins with the way things were designed to be, against which we can then identify deviations and apply correctives. But our culture's abandonment of that worldview has left us adrift, unmoored by any consensus regarding societal mores and leaving each to do what is right in his own eyes. Those who fail to learn from history are destined to repeat it, and we are. Let's pray for revival. Should the Lord grant it, we will see people saved from every variety of sin, including the so-called respectable ones like pride, anger, gossip, and also it will again become normal to identify what is not. Here are some resources. And these are only in alphabetical order. I recommend all of them. <laughs> they are all in our resource center. We have three copies in the resource center of, of most of these. So if you want to follow up, I've quoted Nancy Piercy. That's a very, a very good book. But as I say, I recommend all of them. Strange New World by Carl Truman. Um, tells us how we got where we are. And then one other that I'll highlight up at the top, Rosaria Butterfield, Five Lies of Our uh, Anti-Christian Age is very helpful as well. But they're all good. They're available in our resource center for, for purchase. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we've been able to have these weeks together to consider what you have said in your word about us, about your purpose for us, your design for us, your design in this, for us in the sexual arena. Lord, help us to be people who are serious about following your word and not the world. And as a result of that, may we have credibility then to speak in the love of Christ to the deviations that we see around us when warranted. Lord, we pray that you will change many hearts in our country. We see the demise of many institutions. We see the abominations that have taken place just in the last month, just this past week in our Senate. And Lord, without any grounding, it is completely unpredictable where this goes. People need you. People were made for you. We have the message by which you are pleased to change people from rebels to your will to willing subjects of yours. 
And so, Lord, we ask you to grant us gospel success in reaching people with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, we would desire to see what revivals have done throughout history, to see that have an impact in families, impacting communities. So, Lord, but, but you are going to return at some point. And when you return, the world may be much worse now than it, then than it is now. So you have given us the resources necessary in order to minister come what may. Though we desire these changes, help me to remember, help us to remember, we do not need a Christian culture to do Christian ministry. And so help us to be faithful in our individual lives, faithful in the life of our church. Help us this week to put into practice some of what we have discussed today. Grant us wisdom, safety, bring us back together. Next Lord's Day, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.